Heavenly Father, thank you for your great grace and you call us to rest. And thank you that you cleanse us from our sin. And, oh God, would you commune with us now, we ask, through your word and your spirit. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for you to open our eyes and our hearts and the scriptures so that we can see your grace and see Jesus and that our hearts would be lifted and that we would walk from this place and our souls would be in great rest, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Through God's incredible, ordinary means of grace, of resting in his gospel, of resting in Christ, of worship, of prayer, all of these things, God invites us into a gospel hope, a hope that we've been talking about for the last number of weeks and that we're going to talk about today, this gospel hope that invites us into a a rest that suffering can't steal. It invites us into a, a, into a hope that is not fragile. The gospel invites us as Christians into a place of soul rest where we are not held hostage and find ourselves at the mercy of circumstance. This is our great gospel hope. And what it does in our hearts is we become like children who on, on uh, Christmas Eve have this great sense of anticipation of something that's coming. The Christian life is a, a, is a trajectory of the Holy Spirit doing a work in our hearts after he scandalously saves us in grace. He, that, that saving grace begins to reform our hearts so that increasingly there's this great anticipation that out we have a Father who delivers on all his promises. And even when our lives are screaming the contrary, and even through tears, and frustrations and trials and hardships and sufferings, there is an underlying hope that is anchored and indestructible because it is in Christ alone. Now, we, this is the, this is the, the glorious hope of our, of our gospel um, that we celebrate. The text this morning, which I'm going to read in a few minutes, is from 1 Thessalonians 4. Ha! You thought I was going to go to, to 1 Peter 1. I thought four weeks in a row is pushing my luck. I can't do it. We're going to move on. So I've been sneaky, and I've gone to another text that's going to take us to the same place of gospel hope. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul gives us a great picture, and we're going to be encouraged by that this morning. Now, before I read that text, I want you to understand that this hope is so radical, it, it kicks the ladder out on what makes more sense to our humanity. Karma, as you probably have heard, is the, is the Hindu and Buddhist belief that um, your moral behavior is, is explaining uh, suffering or lack thereof. So good people get good things, bad people get bad things. If you want good things to happen in your life, you do good things, you sow good things, and your life is good. And bad people do bad things, and then bad things come. It's a moral cause and effect uh, kind of a system. And unfortunately, as Christians, a lot of Christians, a lot of Protestant North Americans love karma. So we're surprised when we suffer. We're shocked because we are kind of swimming in a cultural conversation that says, if I'm doing the right things and banging on all cylinders, life should be good. So why am I going through this? And it's, it's not an un, kind of unreasonable in the, in the sense that, like I talked about last week, you know, our, God has put eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so we weren't we weren't originally created for suffering, and so it's, it's tormenting when we do. But the gospel of grace in Christ, which, I'm, which we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians 4 here in a minute, 
it kicks the ladder out on karma. Because the crux of the Christian faith is not that if we do enough good things, in the end it's going to turn out okay. The crux of the Christian faith is that because Christ did everything perfectly, we get what he actually deserves. It's actually the opposite of karma. We're the bad people getting the good things because we were dead in our sin when he came and he saved us apart from our works and apart from anything that we did. This is the radicality of the gospel. This is the upside down nature uh, of the gospel. And so this gospel hope is counterintuitive because it requires that we wait. And as North Americans, we're not very good at waiting for anything. So for us to wait on the Lord or for us to wait on God in our suffering, our trials, our frustrations, it's difficult to do. But the Hebrew concept of wait is to trust. That's why that famous passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, those who wait on the Lord, those who trust on the Lord, they will mount up like wings, uh, like uh, as on uh, wings of eagles, right? It's a picture of the trust and the strength and the hope and the rising in our soul that takes place when we trust. And so we're going to look at the basis of that trust this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 13 to 18. And uh, we're going to pick it up from, in Paul's letter from here. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. Now, as we come to this passage, it's eschatological in the sense that it's like a last days thing. What is Paul doing? Why is Paul talking about this? Why have we gone to this text this morning? Why have we spent the last four weeks talking about gospel hope and talking about the end? It's because the nature of our gospel promise, when we rest in it, it changes our day to day. It actually delivers us from the despair and the exhaustion that comes when we, in our humanity, anchor our identity to fragile things, or we anchor our identity to our successes or our failures. And so this text extracts us out of that. We don't come to the Bible like scientists who are trying to figure out what this document is saying. We come to the Bible like children to a father, to a living word, expecting that this dynamic and living word is actually going to read us and it's going to interpret us and it's going to speak to us and it's going to heal us and it's going to change us. So yes, we come and we're very attentive to, to the detail and to the doctrine and the scriptures. I'm going to do my best to unpack this in a way that serves you this morning. But know this, that this morning as we unpack this text, it's not just an academic exercise, but that the spirit of God is doing something in your heart as the hope of Christ is preached to you. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. God's grace stimulates hope and it enables endurance in trials and in tragedy. And so there's three questions we're going to ask, and these are the questions we're going to ask the scripture. Number one, what caused their trials and their tragedy? 
Why did Paul write this in the first place? What caused their trials and their tragedy? And what, how does that relate to us? Secondly, what was Paul's basis for their hope in their trials and their tragedy? And then thirdly, how does God's grace stimulate hope and enable endurance in us and our trials and our tragedy? Okay, so first of all, let's begin in, in what caused it. So Thessalonica is in northern Greece, and it was a strategic city. It was a seaport. And so Paul planted a church there, and it gives you a little bit of insight into his strategy, planting churches in influential cities where the gospel could be exported you know, to, to other regions. So he plants this church in Thessalonica. He's not there very long, and then he leaves for Corinth. And when he leaves, historians, there's a little bit of kind of debate to nail it down, but the church is so young. It's super young. It's probably, it's probably safe to say it could e even have been less than a few years old. I mean, it's such a young church. And Paul leaves, and, and, uh, and then w w when he leaves, they start going through massive problems. Now, the last few weeks, we were in 1 Peter, and their problem was 62 AD. They're under Nero persecution, and it's getting pretty violent, and it's getting pretty scary. This is about 12 to 15 years before that, so it's not violent persecution. The Thessalonians are going through a different kind of persecution uh, that you and I can identify with. It's actually, the Greek word is affliction, which means they're, they're, they're at the risk of being so social outcasts, even with their own families. They are... There's not violent persecution, but they're, they're completely on the outs, and they, they feel like um, there's just this massive social rejection. At the time, the emperor cult was the fastest-growing religion in the, wor in, in the world, in the, that, that neck of the woods. And so what happened was Caesar Augustus, he declared that his adopted father-in-law, Julius, was divine, which was super convenient because that made him the son of God, right? So this is a pretty great strategy. Well, I think he was divine, which, hey, now I'm God, okay? So that worked out well for him. Now, the reason I say this is because the emperor cult was, this, was the fastest rising religion, which meant everything that happened in the culture had a cultic flair to it. Nothing was neutral, right? So you didn't just go and have a, a barbecue. It was a barbecue to the emperor it was a, to, to, or to the gods. You didn't just go dancing. You were dancing to... You know, everything had a worshipful, undergirding element to it in the culture. So the Thessalonians get saved, and now they're like, oh my goodness, we don't even know how to relate anymore. Can we do this? Can we eat that? Can we go there? Can I buy meat from your shop? I mean, it was offered to idols. I don't know what to do anymore. They're freaking out. You know, we know that the mature Christians were like, eat the meat. It doesn't matter. The, the, the God doesn't exist, and it's a bargain. So, by, right? But the immature Christians that weren't sure, they were like, well, we're not really sure. We're, we don't know what to do with this. So there was this huge confusion in the church. They just didn't know how to relate to anybody. And then there was this huge pressure to return, right? Because imagine, the guy's like, dude, you've been buying your meat from me for years, and all of a sudden, what, have I offended you? You're not my friend. Why aren't you buying my What's going on? I mean, all of a sudden, they're just like, we don't know, we don't know what to do. We're just, com we're just completely, uh, you know, on the outs. So everything, everything that they did had this kind of thing to it. And instead of just, you know, going to the bar and watching the Jays game, imagine that you're like, you go to the bar to watch the Jays game with your friends, but then every time Donaldson gets up, to the plate, everybody hops off their stools and they get on their knees and they go, Oh, the bringer of rain. Oh, to the bringer of rain. Oh, the... But you're not, though. You're not comfortable with that. So you're just sitting on your stool with your beer in your hand going, This is kind of awkward. See, that's what the Thessalonians are going through. They couldn't do anything without sticking out like a sore thumb. They're like, Why aren't you participating? So there's this huge call to return. And uh, their se the, the sexual ethic was another big one because... Thessalonica in Greece, if you've ever been to Greece, I mean, just a, it's very much like our culture and overly sexualized, right? So at the time, 
Here you've got these Christians saying, you know, men saying, I'm going to be a one-woman guy. I'm going to not have sex until I've made a covenant to be with this woman for the rest of my life and give myself to her soul and body and commitment. And then I'll give myself to her sexually. And I'm going to be faithful to her for the rest of my life. Like, this is my new ethic. And the culture is like, what? I mean, what about, what about this makes sense? You know, so we think that the Christian sexual ethic is some, somehow this kind of blasé affair, you know, in 2016. But back originally, it was always crazy to the culture. It was just crazy. So the, they are in huge trials. They have huge stress. Their family is like, what is with you? I mean, they're just like, oh, my goodness, we don't even know how to really. And then on top of all of this. They live in an honor-shame culture, right? So everything that they do is bringing shame on themselves and shame on their families. So the stress is just being absolutely ramped up. And then on top of that, they have a misunderstanding of gospel hope, and Christians are dying, and they're freaking out about it. Because some of them thought they were exempt from death. Some of them wondered and wondered if they were exempt from suffering. And some of them thought that Christ was going to come back and return and bring an earthly kingdom, which Christ didn't do. And now they're, so they're, the church is freaking out. Why are we going through this? This is really tough stuff. So Paul writes, and he gives us this text that we just read from. So this is a little bit of what they were going through that caused the trials and tragedy. Let's move on to the next thing. So what was Paul's basis then? For hope. So this is what they're going through. What's Paul's basis? What's he appealing to, to give them hope in their trials and in their tragedy? Well, the grace of God and the hope that we have in the gospel, it's the bedrock of our faith. And at the same time, it's one of the biggest struggles for us to rest in, in our faith. And the reason it's a struggle for us to rest in, just like those Thessalonians, is because I'm hearing the gospel, but I'm feeling my pain. I'm hearing the gospel, but I'm feeling the suffering. I'm hearing the good news of the gospel, but I'm feeling the sadness of the brokenness of these relationships and of my life and of my, the job that I had that, that, that now I don't have because the whole, I don't fit into this scenario any longer. I mean, they're hearing the hope of the gospel, but they're feeling the pain of their trials. So you see, for us as Christians, very much like the Thessalonians, this is, the, this is the paradox that we live in. See, this is why Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I only have one card to play in case you haven't noticed. And it's I've got to take the text and I've got to make a beeline to the cross because that's what your soul, that's what my soul needs so that we can get extracted out of the feeling of the pain to hear the hope that gives the rest to our soul that is found in Christ alone. And so that's what Paul begins to appeal to, right? Our hope is something we hear, but suffering is something we feel, and that is hard. So Paul's whole tone, not only in this text, because I just took a, part, a portion of it, but I mean, if you read the whole letter, it'd probably take you 10 minutes. You should go home, go home this afternoon and read the whole letter. I mean, I'll just read it front to back in one sitting. You can read all Paul's letters that way in between 20 minutes, probably to a half an hour. Just sit in one sitting, just read the whole thing. It's not an academic exercise. It's when you read the whole thing, you get this gospel vibe. And, and when you read it in one sitting, it's helpful, right? So anyways, I'm just putting that out to you. So Paul's, Paul's tone feels like this. It, it feels like, church, 
acknowledge the conclusions of common sense and then close your eyes and open your ears. But if we only acknowledge the conclusions of common sense, which is this pain and the suffering and the hurt that we're going through, then the suffering makes us nearsighted. It curves us inward. It's all that we see. And instead of closing our eyes to it, not like pretending like it's not there like fools, but I mean acknowledging that it's there, but closing our eyes to it so that our ears can be open to the hope in it, in Christ alone and in his gospel and by his grace. So that's the kind of the tone of Paul's letters. It's the good news of the gospel is that power. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says, the gospel is power. How can news be power? How can it be powerful? It's powerful because when it goes in our ears, it begins to change our hearts and our eyes, and it reorients how we see our, our suffering. I'll borrow from Luther. Martin Luther said it this way. The ears of the Christian are the only organs that matter. And that was his way of saying, we've got to constantly hear the hope that we have in Christ in the middle of what we're doing. We have to, in a sense, become like children. You know how children say, you, know, you make a little child laugh, and they're like, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. And there's no end to it. They can have you do it all afternoon, right? And if the child is too young to speak, like we have a little, our little nephew, uh, 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 James. James will come to the house. Maybe my boys will do something to make They love making him laugh. They'll make James laugh. James will laugh. And then they're like, we're doing it again, we're doing it again, we're doing it again, we're doing it again. I mean, they just keep on doing it because they just love this reaction. The gospel is like that. Jesus says in the gospels, you know, he, we got to be like children. And he's not talking about the innocence of children, because if you have children, you know they're not innocent, right? They're not innocent at all, but they're dependent. So Jesus calls us to be like these dependent children who come to him, and say, do it again, do it again, do it again by your grace, do it again by your grace, God, by, by ministering the hope to me in my pain, in my suffering. I, I'm feeling this, and I need something coming in my ears that's going to reorient my soul and quiet my heart in the middle of what it is that I'm going through. That's why Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of, and the Greek word there is Christos. We often, a lot of your translations will read, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. True statement, and that's a faithful translation. But I think the, the, the better translation is to just stick with what the Greek says and have it say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Because the North American Christian hears word of God and just thinks Genesis to Revelation, proverb a day, you know, keeps suffering away. Like that's how we like to think about the Bible because we're addicted to pragmatism right? If it works, good. So we like the idea of grabbing a proverb that makes us feel a little more empowered and sticking it on the mirror and quoting it every morning and going to work. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a wrong thing or, the, or there's no place for that. I mean, wisdom literature is there for us to live wise and godly lives. So please don't hear me. I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying wisdom literature. I'm reorienting the wisdom literature so that we can see that Faith comes by hearing, but it's not hearing by the, a proverb. If that offends your religiosity, let me, let me offend it more by telling you if, if really what you're after is just a better a version of your life, a better way of doing what you're up to, or a smarter way to handle what you've got to deal with on Monday and hoping that will eradicate your suffering, that's not how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christos, by, of Christ. So we need in our ears all the time he is with us in our suffering. He is wiping our tears in our suffering. One day he will eradicate our suffering. And that reorient our, uh, reorients our hearts in a way that my words just quite simply 
cannot do justice. I stand up here every Sunday with these stammering lips trying to convey, not, not to you because, you know, the people really need it, but because I really need it. And because I'm trying to rest in it, and I am resting in it, but I fall all over myself and resting in it, and I know I can't be the only one in here. You know, the thing with preachers is that we have no spiritual advantage, right? I am called of God to do this, but I am not special because I do it. I'm called to preach God's word, but Christ is the head of the church. You and I are the body. And maybe your part of the body looks like doing a particular thing in the church, and my being part of the body looks like me doing this. But I don't have any advantage. So I'm leaning on the same grace as you so that my, my heart, in my pain and my suffering, just like you and yours, can rest in the goodness of Christ, that he is the one who is our hope and our trials and tragedies. So that's what Paul is appealing to. So notice that, that text that I read you, he uses the word sleep when he's talking about death. Right? Now there's a lot of passages in scripture that use the word sleep to talk about dying. Job 14, Daniel 12, John 11, 1 Corinthians 15, right? To bang off a few. In the Old Testament, death was called in Job 18, the king of terrors. That's death. The king of terrors. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, it's called the last enemy. But Christ defeated death by dying. And because he did that, Paul's appealing to something to help these Thessalonians who have day-to-day, Monday-to-Friday, earthly problems like you and I do. But then they also have this ultimate problem that's freaking them out called death. And Paul's like, I'm going to dial you out of the worry and the anxiety that comes with worrying about this, and I've got to dial you into something that's bigger. Again, I'm going to borrow from Martin Luther here. Paul does not call our death death, but a sleep. Christ's death he calls a real death, which has swallowed up all other deaths. Jesus died. The saints sleep. See, Paul is undermining the finality of the thing that the Thessalonians fear the most. The gospel of grace in Christ, it undermines the finality of what you and I fear most. And this is what Paul appeals to, so that, the, so that Paul is saying, united to Christ, he awakens us from our sleep. And Paul is not minimizing sorrow and trial or tragedy and death. He's using the gospel to reorient us in our sorrow and our trial and our tragedy and in death. Jesus wept before raising Lazarus. You remember that story? He, Jesus wasn't cavalier about it. He wept. Jesus wasn't like, oh, he's dead. You know, I'm going to raise him from the dead right now. Don't even watch this. That's not how the story. He weeps. Why? Because the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of creation, the, the, just he, Jesus is, 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 is confronted with the horror of what it is to be a human made of dirt living on planet Earth. And then what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the death. What is this about? This is this great demonstration, this great picture of the trajectory that, that we are in, that Christ is restoring everything. Restoring everything. Susan was praying this morning and remembering the, 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 the folks in, in New Zealand, the tragedy of the earthquake, of the, of, the, of the tsunami. I mean, the earth itself is broken, right? And, but the hope of the gospel brings us a great place of rest to say, wait a minute, There's rest, there is rest available in a world that is in un, at unrest. 
And now we can engage in culture in very purposeful, missional ways. We can care about the environment in purposeful, missional ways. Why? Not because we're the saviors of the planet, but because we know that we are united to the savior of the planet and we want to participate in his restoration. How much of that stays and goes, we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us detail on that. It's not important. What's important is there's a rest for the church that Paul is drawing them back into. And so that's why he, he, he gives us this hope in our morning. Christian funerals are, are different because of what I'm saying. We mourn and we hope. We lament and we praise. We weep and we laugh. We feel sorrow and happiness because we know what God's grace has done about death. United to Christ, death is not final. And I'll borrow from Peter Lange, who was an 18th century theologian. It's so cute. I'm using the word cute because I just love his language, the way he says this. Here's what he says. After death, both the body and the soul will joyously salute and wish one another good morning. Just great. I love it. That's what Paul's after here. He's saying, whoa, 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 Thessalonica, time out, guys. I need to remind you of something here. Don't pretend like your suffering hasn't happened, but just close your eyes to the natural conclusions of reality for a moment and open your ears to God's reality. And that will quiet your soul. That's why Sunday in and Sunday out, we rest in Christ's grace. You see, church attendance is not about guilt. You're not a good Christian because you're here and you're a bad Christian if you stay home. You and I need to be here because we need oxygen. I mean, that's what Christ gave. This is about resting, right? You're not a, you're not a, you're not a, a, a better or a worse Christian for your church attendance. The, the Sunday rest is this gift to you. Gift of grace from the Lord of rest. Who knows that if he doesn't command rest, we won't. Because we're horrible at it. This is a sermon for, for another day, but I'll just drop this bomb and that you see, underneath, it's not just our work and our activity. It's, it's the work under the work that he's trying to get us to rest from. If you leave this service and you go and you um, spend the whole day painting your house, you can keep the Sabbath and do that, you know. Because it's not the activity. If you're a painter, you probably shouldn't do that. Because now this is a completely different scenario. If you go home and you say, I'm going to spend all Saturday, all Sunday afternoon in the garden pulling weeds and 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 planting flowers because that just, I just, oh, I just, I get out in creation and love God. You can do that and keep the Sabbath, you know. But if you're a landscaper, probably not a good idea. You understand? It's not that, it's not stop from your activity. It's stop from your work. And you can go home and you can catechize yourself until midnight every Sunday and, and come to the conclusion that you are keeping the Sabbath better than everybody else is keeping the Sabbath. And you never kept the Sabbath. Because you never, you never cease from your work. The work under the work of saying, how do I garner identity from, you know, being the most religious person in the, in the pew? Understand? I wish we had pews. They're gorgeous. But anyways, these gentlemen, whatever. Maybe one day we'll have a church that has pews. But it just, <clears throat> anyways. So that's what Paul is doing. He's dialing them out of this. So let's move on to, um, how God's grace actually stimulates this hope. Paul gives us this huge distinction in verse 12, right? In verse 12, he says, he makes a critical distinction. He says, there's a distinction between the mourning and the sorrow of the one who has hope and the one who doesn't. And Paul is not saying in verse 12, he is not saying, hey, you're a Christian, so you shouldn't be sad. Hey, you're a Christian, so you shouldn't mourn. You're a Christian, so your faith is in Christ, so you shouldn't have sorrow. In fact, 
because your faith is in Christ alone and you love this gospel and, and you know, you've, you've, you've got the five solas memorized, you, you shouldn't suffer as much. That's, Paul is not saying any of that. And we burden the church and we burden each other when we have this idea that because my faith is in Christ and I'm united to Christ and I celebrate my union with him, that I somehow shouldn't have these problems or shouldn't have anxiety or shouldn't have... That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's not minimizing suffering. He's not saying Christians should somehow feel sorrow less. He is saying in it, you have hope. In that pain, in the worry, in the anxiety, in the depression, in the frustration, in the anger, in the tears, there's this underlying, anchoring, never going away hope. And that is radically different than the person who has no hope. Because the thing that they've anchored their hope in has been taken from them. And now they're in a, they're, now they're in a downward spiral of despair because there's no anchor in Christ. There's no solution for the ultimate problem. Right? So Paul is not trying to minimize any of that, saying we should have less. He's saying we should have it absolutely with hope. And if you've ever been to a funeral, and I want to be sensitive when I say this, but I want to be direct about it, and I don't want to sidestep it, but if you have been to a funeral of a person of non-faith, you know what I'm talking about. I've been to a lot of funerals, and I've been to some funerals of some folks. I was at a funeral a number of years ago, a small child who was in a car accident. It was tragic. The family was not believers. Nobody, nobody there were believers. And I have not felt despair like I felt there. There is a, unless you just go on a bender and, and, and you do the Irish wake thing and you just, just turn this funeral into a party, the feeling of the finality in that room, right? But the Christian mourns differently. It's not less painful, but there's a hope. And this is what Paul is saying, Thessalonica, you better dial into this. And this is what I'm saying to you this morning. I'm saying, Redeemer, we need to. Dial in and revisit and find great rest in this. Great rest in this. That there is a simultaneous spiritual comfort in our soul that fills us with hope and grace and peace in our trials and in our tragedy. That Christian faith is not stoic insensibility. Christian faith is not icy hardness. Faith is not a force field that keeps suffering at bay. Like three quarters of the books in the, in the, in the Christian bookstore on King Street will try and tell you. You know, save your money. Yeah, that, that, that's, faith is not a force field that keeps suffering at bay. The apostles did not teach the early church that God p would prevent their suffering. The apostles taught the early church that God is with them in their suffering, saves them through their suffering, and in the end is removing their suffering. God's grace stimulates hope and, endur and enables endurance in trials and in travesty. Because our suffering, suffering, it curves us inward. When I suffer, I get curved inward. But hope, it turns us upward. When I get curved inward, I get self-absorbed. I get angry. I get selfish. I have pity parties. I get, I get dialed into Paul Duncan on the whole why and why. When I, when I get curved inward, it's a, it's a bad scene. Because the pain makes me angry. But when I get curved upward, I feel free. That's why I need to hear the gospel like a little kid saying, do it again, do it again, do, tell me again. Turn to another text and show me again, God. Show me from every text. You know, a young man said to Charles Spurgeon one time, a famous uh, preacher, and uh, the young man said to him, you know, I, I can't preach Christ from every text because Christ isn't in every text. And Spurgeon looked at the young guy and he said, 
do you know that you can go anywhere in London and there's a road that will lead you to, you know, you can go anywhere in, in, uh, in London and there's a road that will lead you to your, your house? He goes, Christ is the house. I mean, you've got, it doesn't matter what texture and you've got to take that road and take the church to where the hope is, which is Christ. And this is why we need this, right? You're all dealing with things on Monday and you need the hope and the rest of the gospel through everything that is that you're dealing on Monday. And so, so Paul speaks about these events that are outside of human experience. And that's why he starts using this, this apocalyptic language from the Jewish tradition. He's, he's pulling it from Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And he talks about how we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And he just does it in a few verses, right? A couple, he's not trying to do this big, long, fully furnished doctrine of, 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 uh, of last days and eschatology and trying to explain all of it. What he does is in a few verses, he, he gives this picture of the meeting of the Lord in the air. Why does he do that? I'm going to just close with this and give you a couple of things to encourage you by. First of all, in verse 15, he says, we are telling you something. Who's the royal we in verse 15? All the apostles. He's saying, this is the message, right? And then he says, we are all saying something to you. And then he, then he goes even further and you'll see it there in your Bibles. He says, it's a word from the Lord. So, Christ spoke apocalyptically, you know, about his return. And it, again, there's some mystery there. You know, Daniel and Ezekiel spoke apocalyptically. There's some mystery there. But then what Paul does is he draws a picture of meeting Jesus. And we're meeting Jesus, Paul says. He says meeting in the air. And the Greek word for meet, it's not like high fives and a dance party in the clouds. The Greek word for meet is it's like you, it's like you are going to meet a sovereign. And this is either going to be good news or bad news based on the relationship that you have to the sovereign. And so what Paul is doing with Thessalonians is going, this is actually good news for you. Because you're going to go and you're going to go meet this sovereign. You know, it, re it often referred to ceremonies held on uh, state visits, right? An important ruler was coming back. And so we go to meet our king, who's also the judge. But we're, we are united to Christ. So he's not our, he's, he is our justifier. The judge that everybody's going to meet has already justified us. So this is a good thing. So this is why Paul is saying it. And then notice that he says, he uses the language, you're going to meet him in the air, but we're not living with him in the air. It's a meeting. There's a meeting and there's a return. And, and, and so there's this round trip idea. Where, where am I getting this from? I'm not making this up. It's because it's a familiar process in the Greek and in the original context. If a ruler was coming back from, a, from the city, you find all the elements there. There was a cry from somebody who had authority. There was a trumpet blow. Then the citizens would go out. They would leave. They would hear the trumpet blow. They would hear the cry. They would come out of their houses. They would meet in the street. The ruler would come in and they would, yay, the parade, the celebration of the ruler coming back into the city. And then they'd go back and they'd live peaceable lives in their homes. So Paul takes this very familiar Greek picture of a returning ruler and he says, we're going to go meet Christ in the air. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And so he, he uses this, you know, language. We go and we meet Christ in the air. There's some mystery there. Paul's not trying to fully explain it. There's like three verses, okay? So we're kind of on a need-to-know basis here. But he says, we're meeting him in the air, but there's the same picture that the Greeks would have had of we're welcoming him back. There's the full restoration, right? There's, we're meeting there. We're not living there. We're, he's coming back to restore all things. This is the good news. They join this, this, this processional, and this is the picture. So Paul gives his purpose. And his purpose is not to teach comprehensively about the afterlife or comprehensively about Judgment Day. He's trying to calm their fears about the afterlife. He's trying to calm their fears about Judgment Day. That's why he does it in a matter of verses. Paul spends entire treatises on justification. And he spends a couple little verses going, the return of Christ is going to look like this. Doop. Because he's up to something bigger. 
He's trying, he's trying to get them into this place of rest. Paul's teaching on the Lord Day is not a threat tactic to create anxiety in the church over final judgment. It's a reminder that united to Christ by grace alone, we're given Christ's perfect record in final judgment. So if your doctrine of judgment and last day and death and justification, if, if your doctrines of grace, if your doctrines, your understanding of the Bible and the life you're supposed to be living make you anxious, you have to start over. You have to throw the whole thing out and start over. Because Paul's whole aim was to remove the anxiousness. Paul's whole aim was to remove the fear. Christ has done it all. And now we live to the glory of the one who did it all. We don't live indifferent to the one who oh, did it all, live how I want. That's stupid. Who would do that? That's Romans 6.1. No. We live to the glory of the one who did it all. This is all good news. And so this is our hope. This is our great hope. If we were products of a meaningless, mindless, purposeless process, then death is an enemy to be feared. But if we were meaningfully and purposefully created by God and we're being restored by his grace, then death is an enemy that has already been disarmed. God's grace gives us hope and peace and rest and enables endurance in our trials and our suffering. Let's pray.